Well, good morning, church, and welcome once again to our service of worship today. Jesus often used the image of the harvest to describe missions and evangelism. In Matthew 9, 37 and 38, he told his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. In John 4.35, he said, Do you not say four months more, then comes the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields and see they are white for harvest. We just sang the days of Elijah based on those very verses. These are the days of the harvest. The fields are as white in your world, and we are the laborers in your vineyard declaring the word of the Lord. Yes, indeed, these are the days of the harvest. But what we often forget is that the days of the harvest will come to an end. There's a day coming when no more workers will be sent because their mission will be complete. The earth will be harvested. But what does this mean? When will that happen? How how will that go? Well, that's what our passage today is all about. So I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the last portion of Revelation 14. The theme of judgment that we saw last time in the first part of Revelation 14 continues here in this passage, which is composed of two visions of harvest. The first being the harvest of grain in verses 14 to 16, and the second being the harvest of grapes in verses 17 to 20. So I'll be reading from the NIV 84 edition, Revelation 14, beginning at verse 14. John writes, I looked... And there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word today. Now, at this point, it should come as no surprise that there's great debate over this passage and what it means. The central interpretive question among commentators is this. Does the first vision depict the gathering of the righteous to salvation at the return of Christ or the judgment of the wicked? which almost all commentators agree that the second vision clearly portrays. Well, those who suggest that that first vision we see there pictures the ingathering of the righteous point to the two passages that I read at the beginning there, Matthew 9 and John 4, where Jesus uses the images of harvest to describe the salvation of the elect. Those who suggest that both of the the visions here in this passage picture the judgment of the wicked point to two passages. 
The first being Joel 3, verse 13, which ties both the harvest of grain and the harvest of grapes to judgment. There we read these words. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. They'll also point to Jesus' parable of the weeds in Matthew 13, where Jesus said, beginning at verse 24, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. But, but knowing this in the story, the, the owner insists that his servants let both the wheat and the weeds grow together until the harvest. And then Jesus concludes this story in verse 30. The owner says, At that time I will tell the harvesters, First, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then, gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Okay, so, does the harvest of wheat in Revelation 14 picture the gathering of the righteous or the judgment of the wicked? Or both? Well, whichever it is, the fact that Scholars and, and, and commentators can look at the same passage and come up with literally opposite interpretations is kind of perplexing. Throughout this series, I've tried to be careful not just to tell you what I think the passage means. Because I believe what's most important is not understanding what preachers or commentators think, but hearing and believing what God's Word actually says. I want you to remember the promise of Revelation 1.3. It says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Well, my friends, today, as we take a closer look at these verses, my hope and indeed my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would lead us and help us to hear and take to heart the words of this prophecy. Why? Because the time is near. Judgment day is coming. That's what's clear in our passage today, which begins at verse 14. John says, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This is the second time in the book of Revelation that John refers to one like a son of man. First time, of course, was Revelation 1.13 where John sees Jesus walking among the seven golden lampstands. Well, this phrase, one like a son of man, is, is drawn directly from Daniel 7, where Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds in heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." Well, here, John uses the exact same phrase, one like a son of man, to describe Jesus who will come seated on a white cloud, as we read there in verse 14, which might, might seem like a pleasant, peaceful picture at first, but as we've seen before in this book and, and all throughout the Old Testament, clouds are connected to God's power and, and judgment on the wicked. This isn't a picture 
of Jesus, meek and mild, riding on a cloud, but Jesus, mighty and menacing. It's yet another passage in Revelation reminding us that that Jesus is not only the slain lamb, but the slaying lion, the risen, conquering, and returning judge of the earth. In John 5, 22, Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. You see, true honor and glory is given to Jesus in his role as judge of all the earth. And so notice here what he wears. He wears a golden crown. Though Jesus is truly the King of kings and Lord of lords, the word translated crown here doesn't refer to a crown of of royalty, but a crown of victory won in conflict. One in the great battle fought at the cross. That crown of thorns is now his crown of victory. And in his hand, he holds a sharp sickle, a tool with with a, a sharp semicircular blade used for cutting grain, which, by the way, is, is not the tool of a patient planter, but a ready reaper, which is exactly what Jesus does here. You see, the, the sickle is an instrument of, of judgment. Now look at verse 15. It says, Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, wait, wait, hold on a second. What's going on here? Because it sounds like this angel is commanding Jesus what to do, when, when to reap. That's not exactly the case. Notice where the angel comes from. He comes out from the temple in heaven, meaning that he's been sent from the throne room of God. Not to command Jesus, but, but to convey a message from the Father to Jesus that the time or, or the hour has come. In Mark thirteen thirty two, Jesus said this, Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Well, that's confirmed here. Only God the Father knows the hour, and now that the hour has come, he gives the message to the angel, who is told in turn to give the message to the Son. So the angel delivers the message to Jesus that it's time to reap because the harvest is fully ripe. That word ripe actually means overripe. The wheat is old and withered. That's the idea here, which which is actually an incredible picture of God's mercy. Because as Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so he, he doesn't rush to judge the world, no. Christ will judge the earth only when it is overripe for judgment. That is, when the very last person willing has repented and turned in faith to Jesus, while the rest of the people are so hard-hearted, so withered in their wickedness, resolute in their refusal to repent, that they never ever will. And when that time comes, verse 16 will come to pass, where we read, So he who was seated on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Jesus himself points to this in in Matthew 25, verses 31 and 32. 
Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. On that day when Jesus swings his sickle and harvests the earth, the wheat will be separated from the weeds, the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the wicked. Those who have repented and believed the gospel will be taken into the presence of Christ, while the wicked, those, those who have rebelled, refused to repent, refused to, to stop worshiping the Antichrist at that point, will, will be cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so again, question. Are these three verses a picture of, of the gathering of the righteous or the judgment of the wicked? And I would say yes. Though, though I believe the emphasis here is clearly on the judgment of the wicked, we have to remember that there is a harvest of both good and evil. There's a harvest for the gathering, binding, and burning of the weeds, as well as for the gathering of the wheat into God's storehouse in heaven. Which brings us to the next vision, the second vision, beginning at verse 17, where we read of the harvest of grapes. So we say, it says in verse 17, another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Again, at the order of God the Father, another angel emerges from God's temple in heaven, but this one with a sharp sickle in his hand, implying that angels will be directly involved in the harvest of God's judgment of the earth at the end of the age. In explaining the parable of the weeds to his disciples in Matthew 13, Jesus said this in verse 39, the harvest at the end of the age is, the harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. So angels have an important role to play, which we see as, as another angel comes on the scene in verse 18. It's what we read. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. So, so this is the second angel. The second angel delivers this message to the reaping angel to basically to get to work in gathering the clusters of grapes. And the second angel here, notice, is described as having charge of the fire, which seems to point back to Revelation 8, where, where John saw the angel scooping coals of fire from the altar in heaven, representing the prayers of the persecuted saints, and then hurling those, those, those flaming coals down to earth in judgment. Well, here, the day of God's grace is over, and the day of his long-awaited judgment has begun. The prayers of the saints are finally answered as the first angel is told to swing his sickle and reap because the clusters of grapes are ripe. Clusters representing all the hard-hearted people groups, the stubborn cities, the wicked nations on earth who have rejected Christ, refusing to repent. So verse 19 and 20 says this, the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. 
the graphic description of God's wrath poured out here is, is hard to read. It's, it's hard to wrap our minds around the magnitude of, of this massacre, the terrible slaughter that will take place as, as people are thrown into the great wine press of God's wrath. In ancient times, a wine press was, was a huge vat, this big drum into which clusters of grapes were thrown and, and crushed underfoot to make wine. And as, as the winemakers stepped barefoot on the grapes, the juice would, would burst out of the grapes and, and pour down a trough into a lower vat where the juice would be collected. And, and the bursting of the juice out of the crushed grapes is is a gruesome description of, of the human bloodbath that will result from the, the sweeping slaughter of the wicked who will be crushed by the unrelenting power of God's judgments in the winepress of his wrath. This vivid picture of judgment was the inspiration for the battle hymn of the Republic. The first lyric says, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Well, the, the flood of blood that will result from the trampling of these grapes of, of wrath is staggering. Though, though it doesn't say how wide this river of blood will be, it says that the blood came out of the wine press up to a height of a, a horse's bridle, which is about four to five feet deep for a distance of 1,600 stadia. That is about 300 kilometers long, which, by the way, is, is roughly the length of Lake Ontario or Palestine, as, as some commentators point out. One commentator suggests that to, to fill a pool only 350 feet wide would require all the blood on earth. So I think trying to measure a literal river of blood five feet deep and 300 kilometers misses the point, which is this. The consequence of God's judgment and wrath against the wicked will be absolutely horrifying. But notice verse 20 says that the grapes were trampled in the wine press outside the city. Outside the city. These, these words are very important. It's almost certain the city is Jerusalem, the city of God. So the fact that they're trampled outside the city is a reference to, to being rejected from God's presence and, and the fellowship of God's people. It's no coincidence that the writer of Hebrews points out that Jesus suffered outside the city gates. In Hebrews 13, 11, and 12, we read, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy places, a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Jesus suffered and died outside the city so that we might live inside God's city, the new Jerusalem should be noted that, that the bloodshed in these verses might also be referring to the final battle of Armageddon that will, that will be fought between the armies of heaven and the forces of the Antichrist, which we'll read about in Revelation 16 and 17, as well as the slaughter recorded in Revelation 19, where Jesus descends from heaven on a white horse with the, angels, with the armies of heaven following him. 
This is what we read in Revelation 19, verse 15. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, what do we make of all this? Obviously, this is not a a feel-good message. It's a fear God message. A sobering call to take seriously the reality of God's coming judgment. Though, Though everything seems just to go on as it always has, whether people like it or not, believe it or not, a day is coming when every person will stand before God's judgment seat and give account of themselves. C.S. Lewis described that day like this. Here's what he said. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right. But what is the good of saying you are on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in, something so terrible, so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. My friends, God is holy and just and will not allow evil to go unpunished. He, he will not sweep it under the rug. The wicked must be judged and will suffer for their wickedness. And yet, as we read in Ezekiel 33, 11, it says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, says the Lord. Repent, because we don't know how soon it might be too late. But praise God that it's not too late, not yet. Praise God that today is not the day of judgment, but still the day of God's grace. His gift of salvation is still available to anyone who will repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. So if if you are hearing this and you are not a follower of Christ, I can't urge you strongly enough, repent, which means change your mind before it's too late. Turn away from your sin and believe in God's righteous son who died the death we deserved on the cross for our sins. He took God's rightful wrath against sin for us so that we would never have to experience it. And on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead, that if you believe in him, all your sins will be forgiven and you will be given the gift of eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and you will be saved. For those of us who are believers, knowing that these things are going to happen, may we not just take this to heart. May this break our hearts for the lost, for for those who don't know Christ, and wake our hearts up and and shake us into action, into earnest prayer for those in our lives who don't know Jesus. We've reset our prayer clock, as you know, in large part for, for this very reason, my friends, to pray for the salvation of the lost. Will you join us in doing that? Are you doing that? Will you do that? 
And may we not just be moved to earnest prayer for the lost, but to honestly share with the lost the gospel, the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Amen.
And now receive the Lord's blessing. This is from Revelation 1 verses 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. And God bless you this week.